to help and that's a fact So we have made it our mission to find stuff out From diagnosis and education Stimming out of pure frustration Check to folks who've been there too Collect it together and share it with you If you know someone we should speak to Send them our way and that's what we'll do We like to have our sensory nighters You know what? Hi everyone, it's Jenny here, back with another Sensory Matters show, and today I am joined by Katrina Stewart. Hi Katrina, how are you? Good morning, um, I'm great, thanks. I'm just, I'm just laughing to myself here because talking of Sensory Matters, I was listening to that introductory jingle and I was dancing around my sitting room with great delight. <laughs> it's a great little song, we wrote that ourselves and a friend sang it and produced it for us, so it's, it's really quite cool. I love it. Um, so yes, so everybody, um, Kat, I'm going to call you Kat, mm-hmm. is um, a chair is is the chair and co-founder of Swan, and Swan stands for Scottish Women's Autism Network. So I guess we want to find out a lot more about Swan and what it's all about and why is it called Swan. And so I'll pass over to you to do some explaining. Okay, um, the reason it's called Swan is because. Uh, years ago, um, a very a specialist, highly specialist clinical psychologist, I was talking to Pete Ludlow, who's based in Lincoln in England, described mm-hmm. a nine-year-old autistic girl as being like a swan, um, appearing to glide across the surfaces of life smoothly, but actually desperately paddling underneath just to keep afloat. So when I came to uh, came up with the idea of forming a, a women's network in Scotland for autistic women. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and I was thinking of what it could be called, and I started to put together the words, and then I realised there was this acronym, SWAN, Scottish Women's Autism Network. It was just perfect. I mean, a lot of women who've been in touch with SWAN or come to SWAN over the years have, it's really resonated with them. You know, that idea that you're working terribly hard to appear to be doing whatever it is people expect you to be and do, and, and it looks like you're doing fine, but actually underneath it's incredibly hard work. Yeah, absolutely. So what what on earth led you, you, you said when you were starting to think about setting up a networking group in Scotland, what made you get to that point? Okay, so years ago I did a, a master's degree, um, which I finished in 2004, which was looking at general issues to do with diagnosis of, of autism. And then I was awarded a, a PhD studentship. Uh, by Edinburgh Napier University and um, in the course of of that I decided to focus on girls um, and I decided to focus on girls because it became well actually partly because I've been a lifelong feminist partly because you know lots of reasons partly because I've got girls myself I've got two two children who, who are now young women um, and partly just because I became aware that I thought there must be girls and women in there because all the speakers the presenters the writers the the advocates they they were primarily women so people like Dinah Murray or Donna Williams or Joanne Holiday Willie um Sainsbury um Genevieve Edmonds all these you know there was, uh, Ross Blackburn there were so many women so there was so that didn't quite add up because you know yeah um, and then uh, there were other things as well because of course having quite a, a, a geeky brain myself um I looked at the statistics and um, statistics at that point were saying that, or they accepted statistics at that point, were saying that there was something like a one to four, one to three ratio in autism and Asperger's syndrome that kind of jumped to one in nine. 
And I was thinking, but if Asperger's is a form of autism, then that actually doesn't really make any any sense. So to me, there was a kind of statistical anomaly there as well. Um, And so during the course of my PhD, I came to realise that this wasn't just an academic exercise for me, that there was... um, you know, I could. There were lots of personal things going on that I kind of thought, "All oh, right, okay, this is this is this is not just something that I'm objectively studying. This is something that relates to me personally." Mm-hmm. By the end of once I completed my PhD, the other thing I'd become aware of was just well, actually, quite apart from it. So, the, so I started. So, my PhD was in girls with Asperger's syndrome and anxiety. Mm. Um, and, you know, there is the, and, you know, we could talk about the sensory aspects of that if you want, but um, just, so I'll just mention that, I'll throw that out there. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, of course, what well, girls grow up, you know, and girls grow up and autism, as we know, doesn't disappear when people hit the age of 18. So, yeah. um, so there had to be women, um, autistic women out there. The other thing is I kind of realised I began to bump into people that were maybe professionals, mothers, whatever, who were beginning to go, you know, I think I might be autistic and really struggling because there was nothing there for them. Yeah. And the, 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 you know, the, the research, the knowledge, you know, the information that was out there wasn't particularly helpful. So uh, we were just at the start of Scottish autism strategy or 10 year strategy. And, um, Professor Emeritus Aileen Wendy Dunlop at Strathclyde University was um, in charge of an organisation called Autism Network Scotland. And I I spoke to her, yeah. I spoke to Aileen Wendy, and I said, I think we could do with having a women's network. And she said, that's a great idea. And she got her coordinator to help me set up the original SWAN, Scottish Women's Autism Network. I think actually originally we called it Scottish Women's Asperger's Network, but we changed that quite yeah. quickly. Um, we might even have said Scottish Women with Asperger's Network. We changed that quite quickly. Um, you know, it's all, it's all a learning process, isn't it? Um, yeah. And so that's really how it began. And it began with a group of about six women sitting in a room in Strathclyde University planning how to just really change the world for autistic women and girls. Um, and we, we did some good things quite quickly. We came up with aims. We came up with conditions of engagement. We produced two leaflets. One is, is directed at health professionals when working with autistic women, and which we know have actually been used quite successfully by women going to their GP and saying, can you read this, please, because I really want to be referred to a diagnosis. Yeah. And the other one's aimed at women as patients and some just some helpful tips well we hope they're helpful tips um and then we kind of it just swan evolved we kind of realized over time that the main reason purpose for women contacting swan was they just wanted to meet other women like them i mean we had women coming to meetings they might travel two hours to get to a meeting and just sitting wow this is extraordinary i've never met another woman like me before mm-hmm. and it's that kind of amazingly powerful the sense of identity and the validation and the relational experience, which of course a lot of us are not used to having because we were so out of odds with the people around about us. And just that, you know, that was so powerful. And in the end, that's really, we've mostly evolved into, into that kind of peer support. So we run peer support meetups that are run, facilitated by, because they're quite informal, but they are closely facilitated, mm. skillfully facilitated, um, we have run these meetups in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen. We've got one 
fledgling one in Stirling. I think we've got fledgling one in uh, Elgin, I think, and one pending in Dundee. Um, and they happen most most months. And we've also started a Young Swans Meetup, which is for fifteen to eighteen year olds, and they come. They come in parallel with, um, I think, every third of the kind of adult meetup groups in Glasgow, and they come with a mum. And mm-hmm. that's great as well, because then what you've got is you've got a group of girls, you've got a group of mums offering each other peer support, and then you've got the adult. Um, so what else do we do? We do a lot of, um, we do a lot of, you, you know, we take part in as many of the consultations that are available. So that when the, the Scottish Government reviewed the strategy, we Members of SWAN got involved in some of those consultations all over the country. Um, yeah. um, I'm an advisor to the Independent Review of the Mental Health Act in Scotland. Um, we we all take part in conferences when we can. We we took part in a consultation for the sign guidelines, which are the equivalent of the NICE guidelines. Um, you know, we just we 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 generally kind of are quite active. It's not we're not active in this lobbying sense, but we do take the opportunity to have input into consultations wherever possible. And of course, I do a lot of a lot of presentations and conferences and papers and yeah. And you're you're a Scottish Autism Advisor as well, is that right? I am. Um, so that was that was fabulous because um, Scottish Autism employed me as a consultant originally to help develop their online resource for women and girls called Right Click. So, so this was on the back of having seen me present on my PhD findings to a conference. Um, Charlene Tate of Special Autism um, got the funding to employ me to do to, to create, help them create this resource. And it is, although I sit myself, it is fantastic. It's just filled with information and lots of, I, you know, I had an absolute blast. I was paid for two years to interview people and interview autistic women and it's all filmed and it's all out there in the resource. So I've been speaking to people like, oh, huge range of people. Judith Gold, um, Tony Atwood, but Carly Jones, Sarah Hendricks, Diana Murray, Lynn Moffat, who was one of the co-founders of, of Swan, um, Debbie Brown, who's in who's local, uh, Helen Ellis. I mean, just I mean, if I've missed anyone out, you know, forgive me. We just lots yeah. lots of women, really interesting stuff. So yeah, so yeah, so then so then I kind of became a permanent employee for Scottish Autism. Yeah. Great, and yourself and your autism diagnosis did that happened late for you? <laughs> yes, um, I actually went and got my diagnosis after I got sworn up and running. Um, I quite. I, I quietly, it was partly to do with identity because I just felt, well, am I an autistic, am I a professional and academic researcher, um, you know, running this thing, facility for autistic women, or am I an autistic woman working with autistic women? And I decided for myself that I wanted to go and, and just get that bit of paper. Mm-hmm. What, what was quite interesting was that even members of SWAN were <laughs> Uh, well, my 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 right hand woman, Lynn Moffat, who without whom Swan would not have survived, um, she um, she kept saying, "But what if he says no?" And we're going, "He's not going to say no." I'm an expert. Just <laughs> I know about autism. I've been studying it for years. No, no. But what if he says no? You know, because she was a bit worried I'd leave, but of course I didn't. And I am autistic. I, I think I might have difficulty getting that diagnosis, it, 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 depending on who I went to see, because you know. I look people in the eyes, I'm very chatty, I'm very sociable. Um, what else? All, all the other reasons, you know, I've raised children. Um, 
how successfully you'd have to ask them <laughs> but you know um i'm very proud of them fantastic young women um so you know that all oh, there's lots of things about me that would cause some people to kind of go well you can't be autistic yeah but i am yeah so what what is it that what is your autistic makeup what does that look like for you because it's so different for everybody but what what are your autistic traits I think I've always thought of things very I've I've seen things quite differently I actually at a school reunion a few years ago which really surprised me because people's feedback on how they remembered me was quite not what I would have expected but um, uh, uh, unusual way of looking at things very very smart very intelligent um, just I think that that difference which is quite hard to rationalize when you're a child because you can't say well I'm, I'm very intelligent and I'm a bit of a lateral, you know left field thinker it doesn't really you, you can't do that as a kid so you just feel like you're a bit weird don't you yeah um well I'm asking you that but <laughs> um um I think I probably, there was probably a huge discrepancy in my apparent communication uh, verbal abilities when I was younger and my and my ability to really communicate um, or even identify emotions. You know, I sometimes knew that I'd felt something, but I couldn't actually understand what it was. And it mm-hmm. would take me a long time to really have to think through, to work through. I had to spend a lot of time processing anything stuff. So I would have that really kind of classic, threw myself into things with great passion, run around, being terribly active, and then I would just completely crash and burn. And when I did that, I would have to just withdraw sometimes for weeks for more or less in the world to just process what had actually happened. So yeah. huge, huge discrepancy between my apparent abilities and, uh, you know, my t- daily life skills. Now, that's one of the things my... A psychologist did was he um, assessed my IQ, but he, and he assessed my um, daily life skills. And what he was saying quite rightly was well, the reason he does that is he's looking for that spiky profile. So my my life skills were within the normal range, but they weren't they weren't as high as you would have expected for someone of my intellectual ability. So it's that discrepancy between those. Right. Um, I think uh, so. So I've. Um, what else does it mean? Yeah, sensory, definitely there are issues around that. I know Peter Vermeulen's now questioning the whole sensory thing and what it means, but whatever the actual neurological things that are going on, there, mm. there's no doubt I've always been highly sensitive to um, te- uh, tactile. Uh, yeah. So I remember sitting scratching and itching my way through senior school. Um, labels can actually just cause me real pain. Yeah, so, um, I have Meersurlin, which I also discovered quite late on in life, which means I have sensory, you know, visual stress, they call it. Yeah. So my, I have a pair of blue glasses, which at the moment are broken, but I certainly wear sunglasses almost all the time um, okay. just because I uh, can't bear fluorescent lights and they make me feel like I've got concrete weight in my head. Um, I think I'm very good at being problem solving. I think I've got that very you know um uh, logical makes connection i love making connections um seeing patterns and things mm-hmm. um i am very detailed thinker but i can also see a big picture i am a perfectionist i think that's a very i think yeah. it's a very I don't like to do the whole binary thing too much but it does seem to be quite a female trait that perfectionism and i don't know if that goes with the masking and desperately feeling you have to be right all the time i don't know um yeah, I think, I think, I think, I mean, they, 
Hmm. Autism is really about how you how you experience the world, isn't it? So I think in some ways it could be quite hard to articulate. I mean, like you say, it's all very different. So I have a lot of what I would say are quite classic autism traits, but it really boils down to how do I feel in terms of my life experiences. And it's just a diagnosis of autism just makes sense to me. It puts yes. an awful lot of my life into it just all fits into place you go oh that's why yes and it's massively important because it's 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 terribly destructive to get a diagnosis if it's a very negative experience and what you get is this deficit damaged model and your life is over which does happen it is happening to young women and boys i do say too and that's really destructive but the really positive thing about getting a diagnosis is that self-insight it gives you and how it can help you make sense of not just your difficulties, but the things you're also really good at. I mean, I came away from that diagnosis actually just, I just sat and cried. Yeah. Not because I was sad about getting the diagnosis. It was the IQ. It was this thing of having felt like I was a bit weird and a bit of a failure my whole life. And there's someone was saying, but you actually have an exceptionally high IQ. Yeah. And that just that was just like, I can own this now. And that was a fantastic thing to take. This is my, this is one of my assets. And I could own that with pride rather than going, why am I so weird? Um, so yeah, is that enough? Is that yeah, enough? No, that makes so much sense because I mean, I I hear generally speaking, most people's experience of diagnosis once they get to getting a diagnosis is like relief and so positive. And finally, I know my place in the world, and I'm not just weird. It's just me, and that's that's just the way I am. And so most people that I speak to seem to find it a really positive thing, no matter when it happens in life. It just answers a lot of questions. It answers a lot of questions. I mean, I am cross about all sorts of things. I'm cross that it's taken me till the age of 55 to get my PhD. Not because, it's because that, again, was validation. I mean, the thing that actually finally drove me to finish that wasn't all the rational reasons around it. It was that kind of personal thing of, but this is my validation. This tells me I'm a geek and I've got the letters up to my name to prove it. Now, I know that that kind of ability is not the be and all and end all. There are whole lots of different kinds of abilities. So I'm I'm not, I'm not you know, this is just, this is my thing. Yeah. But being able to own that as my thing, go, well, what, what can I now do with this? I felt like I'd spent an awful lot of my life not not working within my area of comfort or even using the things that I'm good at it was like I was constantly I was spending a lot of time in my life putting a huge amount of energy into trying to do things that weren't actually best I wasn't best suited to yeah which I did kind of know actually I mean I had tried different ways to, to get around that in my life um but it's just that finally going well this is what I'm good at and the other thing is actually going I, I'm I'm very conscious that I am incredibly privileged Mm-hmm. In that sense, I have these great resources, and yeah. so I feel. But it's much easier to take those resources with confidence and say, "Now I know what I've got. I can, I can, u- I can make use of these constructively. This is what I can do with what I have got." And I guess that's what I'm trying to do in my work: is really um, use what I do have to make a difference for for others, basically. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I also want to talk about your daughter because you've got two daughters, but one's also on the spectrum and when that happened and how that impacted things. So we'll take a quick break and we'll pick up on that in a minute. We have just launched a brand new product over on our website, the Mama Smart's Hands On Magnet. This is a revolutionary way to keep your kids safe around cars. 
Go and check them out on our website. Prices start from £13.95 or one credit. And if you need any help or support, please go to Facebook and join our sensory support group where you will find lots of like-minded people with great help and advice. Now back to the podcast. Okay, welcome back. So before the break, we were just chatting to Kat about her own experience of um, her diagnosis and, and the benefits it has had for her, albeit late in life. And I'd also mentioned the fact that she's got two daughters and one of those has been diagnosed with autism as well. Where did that fit in? Did Was it like a, a road of you, you did your PhD, your daughter got a diagnosis, it made you question yourself or was it not as sequential as that? Okay, I, I'm not going to dwell on this because actually, to be, to be honest, I, I, it's not really my story. It's hers as much as it is mine. It's, um, it's, I, I'm, I know you understand. understand Absolutely. Um, but I did become aware quite early on in doing my PhD, a lot of things began to slot into place. And I think obviously that has huge repercussions personally and in terms of our family and, and, and so on. But actually what it did do was, it, again, it really, it really um, formed the way I went about my PhD because I was no longer an academic researcher um, researching a group of people that I had no personal connection with. I was an insider researcher in so many different ways as a mother, you know, yeah. someone who actually realised the whole family is probably a bit spectrum. I mean, I'm sure my father had Asperger's, you know, so so that then takes a difference. You know, it means you're actually regarding things in a, from a different perspective. And that's actually embedded in the whole way I, I did my PhD and what I write about. In terms of, I mean, obviously there's a huge driving force when you when you feel personally attached to something. You you know that gives you an it sometimes gives you an added incentive to really create change because you want yes. to be better for the next generation or whatever. And I still want it. I mean, my children are up and running, and I said early up and running. You know, they flew in the nest, um, and like I say, I'm very proud of them. They're extremely uh, fabulous young women, and they're getting on with their own lives, so that's great. Um, but the other thing about my PhD was my findings were very much about, yes, girls, Asperger's girls do experience anxiety and these manifest in all sorts of ways. And these are some of the things I have found that contribute to that anxiety because the reason I was doing what I was doing was because we knew that mental health was a massive issue in the autism population, including anxiety, but we didn't really know why. Yeah. What I found was but actually no one was really asking them why. <laughs> no one really was trying to work out, well, what is anxiety to an autistic person? There were a couple of qualitative studies um, that had been done, um, and I wish I could remember the names, Hughes and, Hughes and Jones or something, and a couple of others, which um, Smith, is it C. Smith, Carrie Smith? So, sorry, but a couple of qualitative studies, but there was so little available there was very little research which was actually asking autistic people what's your life experience so my PhD was all around trying to facilitate the authentic voice and get to the root of what their experiences were and what came out was that the school environment was actually toxic to them um, and they uh, they didn't feel comfortable anywhere um, there were issues around some of the homes context as well but it you know it was just so what I perceived really was um, Girl and still, still see girls, autistic girls, really having almost insurmountable barriers put in place to to, to accessing their education, and also real lack of that kind of pastoral care. So you know, these are girls that maybe couldn't access extracurricular stuff because they were just not 
they just weren't accessible to them really for various yeah. reasons or were really housebound because they were frightened to go outdoors because they got picked on or bullied or do you know so um a lot of my driving force I suppose is 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 that it's trying to address yeah all that I don't know if I've gone completely off topic or not no not at all it, it sounds it sounds very familiar I mean I mentioned we were chatting before we, we hit record about my own daughter who at the moment has anxiety big time and it's a constant struggle and it does make me question mark is is it autism because she's classically everything that you would think because she functions fine during the day at school and comes home and just loses it and is gradually losing interest in things outside of school and just slowly crumbling and I'm I'm really struggling with is is it is it the anxiety that is just getting out of hand or is there something else going on or and I don't know the answers and it's really difficult and it's almost like which which one comes first you know it's really hard don't know How, how, how old is she Jenny she is ten. Yeah, that I've seen. I mean, I mean, with all due respect to to um, some of the lovely people who are researching this area, Will Mandy, for example, huge amounts of time for. But I, I kind of disagree. He, the, he, and uh, I think Robert Stewart came out with a piece of research about basically about the, the real difficulties kick in around thirteen. I actually don't agree with that. I think the real difficulties for autistic girls starts really manifesting around about the ages of eight, nine, ten, mm-hmm. and it's also really common. Um, there's a group in Edinburgh called uh, Colouring Outside the Lines, which is a peer support group for families with with girls, and they I, I think they more or less found the same thing. So, experientially, I would say you know really um, eight, nine, ten are critical ages for for, for girls um, because the social demands begin to become just too complex and, and challenging for them, and also. Emotionally, they're not really a emotionally and b just in terms of the way their minds work. You know, I think a lot of I don't think I know a lot of autistic girls and women have real issues around the gender expectations on them in terms of you know interests, focus, um, social ability, social priorities. You know, and um, they don't you know they don't particularly want to start getting all silly about boys they don't I mean, I mean no nine ten is quite young for that anyway but it's just some girls are beginning to do you know some girls get quite mature at that age and then all sorts of things begin to kick off that just becomes so much harder for autistic girls and I know my own my younger daughter I mean I will say this I, I totally um, get that picture I mean I just saw my incredibly bright happy interested active outgoing sociable wee girl just began to sink into herself and withdraw from the world and it was just awful and I could see and everyone else thought she was doing fine but I would see her coming out of school I would see this fixed almost like a fixed kind of not quite smile on her face a wee kind of blank look and her head held up and I'd think you've had a really bad day yeah, get round the corner and she'd cry, or there'd be something that had enraged or something. And it's yeah, it's a horrible thing to watch. Yeah, um, I think, but I like I say, it's, I think what's really important is to anxiety does seem to be completely part and parcel of the autistic experience, but that doesn't mean if someone gets diagnosed with autism that the anxiety should then be dismissed. It's not like that means there's nothing to be done about it. And if you're interested, you could watch Sarah Hendricks. She's got. YouTube stuff up on up online, and she's got a presentation for on the Swan uh, website. She did a she did something for us last year. Um, it's it is absolutely intrinsic to the autistic experience, but that doesn't mean you should just 
say, well, well, they're autistic, therefore there's nothing to be done. It's not like that. There are lots of things to be done. Yes. Putting in uh, adjustments and uh, make it, you know, and and also teaching her self-care skills. And that's really, really important um, is giving them the confidence and the tools to help look after themselves. It's really hard, I think, for adolescents. That's one of the things I kind of get a bit cross about. People say, oh, well. You know, her, her, I'm not saying you. I mean, some of the professionals. You know, um, well, her, you know, her problems are a bit quite subtle and blah blah. blah. You go, well, actually, they're not subtle. But by the time they're thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and they're less subtle, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be harder to tackle because I think it must be really hard for an adolescent because they're still teenagers. And what happens to adolescents? Their brains are unraveling and they're putting them back together again. And basically, what they're trying to do is work out who they go, they are going to be as adults and. That's not a good time to be told, well, who you are is you're this person with a label called Asperger's or autism. And and some of the narrative that then goes with that, oh, and this means you won't be able to do that and you can't do that. And, you know, it's all these kind of negatives and barriers go up. And I have to, I'm going to, I know I'm talking very fast, but I'm going to say this because I think it's so important. When young people get told things like, well, of course, you won't be able to have a family or you won't be able to work with children or you won't be able to do this. I get absolutely enraged because there is no evidence to support any of that at all, because people don't know, because no one has actually been doing the research to find out what happens to non-intellectually disabled autistic girls when they grow up. So how do they know how their lives are going to go? They don't. So I'm just saying to you and anyone else who's out there listening, yeah, we have a lot of people who have come to Swan off and on over the years. I would say it's all about choice for me. It's about being able to choose who you are, getting a sense of who you really are, not the mask that you've portrayed to the world for years and years, but who you really are. Um, and that could be not having children. It could be having children. You can be any sexuality you want. You can uh, choose your gender identity. We have women in Swan. We have Sorry, we have individuals and so on who are non-binary, who are transgender, who um, are lesbian, who are heterosexual, who haven't raised families, who have or are raising families, who have a career, who don't have a career. We have such, it's such a wide range. Yeah, because because it affects anybody in the population. So it's, you know, any of those scenarios can exist. Exactly, but I think it's really important to make sure that young people coming up to an assessment and diagnosis really do get that you know it's 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 really but the thing that makes that hard I think is I certainly see it in my daughter that that all she wants is to fit in mm-hmm. all she wants is to be liked and be the same as everybody else as everyone does at school because you get that's so important at school isn't it feeling that sense of belonging and being like your peers and and so to then have it questioned that you might not be is just really challenging for their thought process and who they are and they almost don't want it does that make sense it makes a lot of sense I think it's really hard to somehow it's just about being able to find a way to communicate with them that actually being different can be a really fantastic thing and if you're interested or you don't know about this there is a website that I really like it's called a mighty girl and it's not autism focused it's just one of the things I've got to be in my bonnet about is about role models it's yeah. I think it's quite hard for young girls who are autistic whether they're 
whether they're identified and, and diagnosed or not, because where are their role models? And I was very lucky to, well, I found second wave feminism, I suppose, and just writers and, you know, so there were lots of kind of women role models that I suppose I kind of looked to. Um, but I think if you look on the Mighty Girl and they just are constantly, um, you know, just sending stuff out about, and it could be girls that are doing stuff now. It could be girls who are doing science projects that actually could actually, you know, could actually make a difference to a population in Africa, or, you know, it could be, you know, people who, you know, Amelia Earhart, for example, you know, or just lots and lots of women in lots of periods of history, and they've had fantastic things they've done. It's just a big celebration. Female achievement, basically, and I think that's that's the sort of thing that you know is quite good to, to focus on. Because some of those will almost certainly have been autistic, even just in terms of statistics and proportions. Yeah. The other thing, again, is like I say, is to remember that um, some of the things that we we hope to see our children do as they grow, because that reassures us they're hitting their milestones and they're going to be okay in the world. I mean. Um, the big thing I suppose I'm thinking about is the whole friendship thing. There's a massive emphasis on friendships. Yes. And a lot of professionals and parents focus on that as well because that's their way of reassuring themselves that this person's going to be okay. But actually, for a lot of autistic girls, making, you know, having a, a friendship circle is not the thing that they're going to be good at because it's, just, you know, but they may well have other interests and it's about kind of assuring them that those interests are just as valid. And yeah, it might make them stick out a wee bit from their peers, but on the other hand, they're more likely to make friends with people who are like them, where they have shared interests. Yeah, You know, the priority for a lot of girls, girls are meant to be more sociable, they're meant to be more nurturing, they're meant to be more focused on appearance and and romance and, and all the rest of it. So an, an intelligent autistic girl who's trying very hard to fit in will we'll try her best to do all that stuff, but it may really not be where her her real passions lie. And if you're depriving her of those real passions, then you're not giving her an opportunity to develop her own abilities or self sense of self or, or whatever. And, I, you know, I have said this to parents groups, you know, the chances of your child making friends if she pursues her passionate interests are greater, yeah. even if she never does get very good at making friends at least it might well lead to her having a career that satisfies her and there are worse things um, yeah do you know I hope I'm making sense no you are I think you're absolutely right that people do put a massive en- emphasis on the social side don't they it's almost like um it can be common for people on the spectrum to have social challenges and therefore that becomes something that we're trying to fix rather than accept and direct that energy to something that is more that person. Well, I, I mean, I, I mean, I think I, I did get very, quite badly bullied, I think, when I was very young. But I think it's just because people found me very odd. Um, and then there was a whole period where I don't think I, I don't think I had much in the way of friends. I think maybe we had one or two. But actually I don't think I was that interested because I actually just didn't find my peers particularly interesting at that point. I know that sounds like a terrible thing to say, but that is my reality. I mean, obviously I went through the motions and all the rest of it. And then at some point, I think around about the age of 15 or 16, I did start making friends. And some of those friends are people that I'm still really close to now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so it's not it's not that I haven't had friends, but there's certainly there was a period where I just found my peers really just not engaging at all. But yeah. I did feel very conscious of the fact that I was not in any kind of friendship group, and it did make me feel very odd. I do remember that, and I was very lonely. Yeah, you can't become someone that you're not. Um, no. However hard you try, and uh, I I think. So I said, so yes, challenging, but it's a almost a two it's a two ways thing. It's not just because it's necessarily because it's, it's it's really getting across this idea of there being something wrong with someone. It's more about going, okay, you're actually a very unusual person, but that just makes you right in a different way. Yeah. How do we accommodate that unusual rightness? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we work for that to support that? And that's the really hard thing because we're working in an environment in a society that really isn't on the whole that good at accepting difference. Not really. Yes. And, and yeah. autism is so poorly understood. It's a very young, you know, it's a very young kind of thing. I mean, autism as such, as we understand it, it's really quite a recent idea. Yes, uh, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah. um, bringing the conversation back to Swan, because one of the other things that you're doing is this mentoring program. Oh, Can you yeah. tell me about that? Okay, so because of the, we could see all the gap in this, you know, the Swan has basically been autistic women supporting autistic women uh, over the age of 18 because it's entirely voluntary. Um, its core activities are entirely voluntary. So we were just having to do it ourselves. So it was over 18 until we started this 15 plus group as well. But yeah. the other fabulous thing that's happened is that Scottish Autism are kind of, you know, it's, I suppose it's a way of sponsoring us, I suppose. They they got the money organised to um, fund a, a project idea of mine, which was actually a peer support mentoring project. Mm. Um, because we know within the autism community, some researchers are identifying, you know, that actually peer support is a huge thing for autistic people, um, because some of the, the things I've mentioned earlier. Um and so we're running this mentoring project. It's a one-year project. We're modelling it as a pilot. Okay. It's completely, you know, we've we've what we've done is we've been running a very rich program of training for the mentors, the autistic women mentors, and then we've matched them with um, with their mentees, and they're currently just um, in the process of that kind of mentoring mentor kind of contract, where they kind of look at what the mentees really want help with or support with. Um, but the training has been quite formal in some respects. So we commissioned a very expert um, trainer, not not an autism, but her life has been d- dedicated to empowering women. Um, in lots of different contexts, primarily in terms of financial independence, you know, setting up businesses yeah. and that kind of thing. But she does work around the world. Um, so that's Dynamit Bennett, I-C-E-E is her company, O-B-E-F-R-F-A, I think those are her letters. And then we've also got next, so she's been delivering formal training, uh, mentoring and networking, which has been really interesting. I think it's been quite challenging all around, but fantastically uh, interesting. And we've all just learned huge amounts from it. It's just been brilliant. And we, we've we've responded. So we've been getting feedback all the way along. So we've responded to people's feedback and we've kind of shifted the program a wee bit and added bits in. And, mm. and then the other part of the that program has been from the Forest Commission in Scotland and they have been giving us regular sessions which are woodlands-based. And that comes back to the sensory thing. So um, I wanted that in the programme because I used to do a lot of outdoors workshops with groups for health and well-being. And so I know the Farish Commission do this kind of stuff. So I went to them and said, is there any chance? And they went, yes. So brilliant. it's been brilliant because what we've had is the women 
out in the woodlands areas, um, it's a completely different kind of training. It's much more about... Um, so some of it's actually about creative expression, you know. Craig Thompson of Operation Play Outdoors, who's been doing this work for the, you know, funded by the Forestry Commission, you know, he might get the women um, making something with leaves, doing some creative leaves, or he took some ceramics out a few weeks ago, or just just create some expression of how they're experiencing their day um, visually and tactilely as well, you know, just using natural things as he's been teaching them some bushcraft skills. There's always a wee fire going. It's lovely. Um, and there's a sense of <clears throat> self-development, self-awareness, just going through various things, team building. And all of this is in an environment that is so unlike, you know, the usual urban onslaught of lights and noise. And it's just, I think, been incredibly, um, positive that's the feedback mm. i've been getting is that the women have just really really loved it um and i feel quite passionately about that about getting getting people to engage with their natural environment because i just think it can be so um soul feed, if it feeds the soul if that doesn't sound a bit too fey um i think it's really really important actually and it's a huge um self-care tool it's always been for me throughout my life we're also running an art we're also running an art project Mm-hmm. Uh, Ronnie Casement, who's our coordinator, so we did the funding, did pay for a part-time coordinator, and Ronnie is the woman who runs our Glasgow meetups. Um, she also brokered um, a number of training workshops at the local Apple Store for our mentees. So they've had a series of those, and um, they're getting they're getting to go around the Glasgow Women's Library. I think they're getting a special trip to Glasgow Women's Library if they want to. And then we've got um, we've got an away day also funded by the forest commission to kind of celebrate all the mentors and mentees together at the end of the project. But we've also, the thing, important thing is we've been having externally evaluated. I did start to say that and I think I got sidetracked. So Yolanda Gibb um, is our external evaluator. She's from Durham university and we're running. So she's evaluating all the way through. We're doing a quality of life tool. We're doing a modified quality of life tool um we're doing she's doing you know qualitative interviews with participants and so we're i'm quite excited we're very excited about the outcomes from that about what that's going to tell us in terms of taking things forward and just on the back of that we're already talking to the forestry commission and us and a local school we've got a relationship with about how we can run one specifically focused on the teenagers which is really what I, the point one of the points i wanted to make is that's we now feel that we actually have the capacity to do some work that I, th- I mean, we want to support women right across the lifespan and there's so much to do. Yeah. But I feel really passionate if we can get into that school age group, if we can get, if we can get that support to the school girls, then we are really supporting a positive life trajectory for them for yeah. the rest of their lives. That makes a lot of sense. So that's where our, that's where we're hoping to go next. Cool. Is is there like a Yuan and a Wuan and an Iwan, i.e. an English Women's Autism Network and a Welsh and an Irish one or not? So we've had that inquiry from quite a lot of people. And I've had a couple of conversations, several conversations. I we, we, We're currently trying, we're really in the middle of really formal, I mean, we're a proper charity now. We have been since the end of 2016. We have a board of trustees. 
we're seeking more permanent funding for the organization. We're building our kind of processes of protocols. We're getting all our facilitators and the mentors are getting PVG checked. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a new conditions of engagement, which is kind of maybe a bit more detailed and robust than our old ones. And people who facilitate the groups will, are signing those. And so we're, Part of that is to really, and, and, and we're coming up, I mean, I did a presentation last year about about having to put a theoretical structure around what SWAN does, because we've been doing it for six years, but we haven't necessarily formulated exactly what it is we're doing. So that's what we're doing now. And we're really kind of participatory action research organisation. So the, this is a very long answer to your question. <laughs> the answer really is about we are creating a context, well, we're creating a model that we can then give to other people. Because Great. one is run on very specific, you know, we've got a very strong ethos about what it is we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're doing it. Mm. Um, so it's taken quite a long time to build this one, and we kind of feel we people need to understand that. It's not actually as simple as putting a group of women in a room together. No. It's much more, it's much more, uh, we're bringing a lot of skills and a lot of our life experience and previous training to this. So, so what we want to do is create a model that we can give to other people and say, look, here, here it is. This is what you have to do. But this is how you need to do it if it's going to work. And we can call it SWAN, so yeah. supporting women's autism network. I'm quite happy yeah. to, you know, people can put our logo, you know, they can put that endorsement on what they're doing. We just need to be sure that we're in accord with exactly how it's run. And one of the really difficult things around that is that, is that we're completely autistic led. We get a lot of support from our fantastic allies at Scottish Autism and other people. But we, we are autistic people leading this. And that could be quite hard for people to get their heads wrapped around. But anyway, yeah. yeah. So yes, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, that sounds exciting. So for anyone in Scotland then that, that is looking for help, then the best way to get in touch is just to go to the website and have a look at what events and information that you've got going. Is that the right place yeah, to go? The website's worth a look. Um, it's not as live as I hate to say. I mean, I've seen the website's also run by an autistic graphics designer, Lou McGill, who's just very kindly does it for us as a volunteer, which is brilliant. Um, but in terms of events, and so there's a fa the Facebook feed is on the website, but ultimately that's where most of the news and the coming up events is coming through, is through our Facebook page. You can pick that up on our website. If you are on Facebook, then I would just go straight to our Facebook. Well, I would see our website, of course, because it's nice to look at. And um, there's lots of information up there. And we also have some blogs from some of the, the swans. Um, so Facebook page. We have a Facebook page that is public. We also have a, a very closed online chat forum that we moderate very carefully. And if you're based in Scotland, mm -hmm. uh, you can join that because obviously the meetups aren't accessible for everyone um, and for the name of the page so that people can find it is the scottish women's swan scottish women's autism network yeah so, but, but they have to type that in rather than swan i think don't they i think they do yeah because there's a number there's a few swans none like our yeah. own, but. okay fab <laughs> people can find you there um super so and I, I think what you're doing is fantastic and very much needed and the fact that it is autistic led i'm sure will just add so much weight to what you're doing because it's really focusing on you, you know you're not it's not a clinical cold expert looking in type thing it's someone who's living it breathing it and you know it's so I think it's very inspirational it's really good and it would be awesome if it just continued to spread across the UK as well and offer that support for the full life of a woman on the spectrum so it's fantastic thank you 
Um, before we finish up, I'm going to ask you my, my three standard podcast questions, which I meant to slip in earlier, but forgot because I was so busy listening to what you said. Um, so one is, what do you, as someone on the spectrum, wish that neurotypicals knew about autism? That if you could just sprinkle some magic dust across the UK and everyone knew this one thing, what would it be? That we're people. We're just first and foremost. We're, we're people. We just are people who t- happen to think differently. And if you um, can take that on board and accept the quirks and the sometimes, yeah, if you accept the quirks and the differences, then and 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 forgive us our failings. Then what you will get in return is, I think, something very different, very rich um, in your lives and society as a whole. Okay, cool. And other random question is, if you could be an animal, what would you be and why? I'd be a crew. <laughs> crew? A crew. <laughs> um, <laughs> why? Uh, because uh, I came up with this when I was giving a presentation. Uh, I was involved in the Na- National Autistic Society, the Women's Conference, two years ago, where we were asked, there was a group of, I did a presentation, but the autistic women there were asked about what, what success was to um, autistic women, and I, we all, in our own ways, seem to say very much the same thing. It's about it's about leading an authentic life, and I suppose I kind of I had a picture of of a wolf, which was really the anxiety that had haunted me all our, all my life that I didn't really exist because I didn't actually know who I was. Mm. Um, and then I found this other lovely picture of a of a very happy wolf looking very serene under the moonlight, and I was saying, you know, and I looked into that big black hole, and I realised I was there. And and then I kind of produced this picture and I said, but actually you think I'm talking about the wolf. I'm not. I'm talking about the crew on the rock. <laughs> In that picture, sitting next to the wolf, people kind of went, oh. I said, because I love crews. You know, they're so smart and they're funny and they're very determined and they're very wily. And I kind of feel like that's that's kind of me. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and lastly, a kind of sensory or autism hero that you think is making a difference in the world that should be given a nod to. Um, I, I'm not being facetious here. I honestly think that's an impossible question to answer because I think there are so many who are doing such amazing work now. And I am so proud of so many of the women who are involved in SWAN. I was very tempted to try and name uh, one or two, but, you know, they know who they are. They know how proud I am of them. But actually, there's a, there's a lot of them. And I have learned constantly I'm learning so much from the one so on. So I, I, I would say they really are all my heroes, especially when so often they are really are surviving against quite difficult odds. Yes. Yeah, that, that would be... That would so be. no one person but the collective voice because I think the noise and the voice around all of this is getting louder and heard more clearly, which is really positive. And I, I, yes, it is fantastic positive. And I, I do want to, and I, I, I keep doing it, but I know this isn't part of your random question, but I do really appreciate that the, 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 our true allies... You know, yes. We do have people who kind of present themselves as allies and you kind of go, really? But we, we do have some really wonderful true allies and I, that's making a huge difference too. But I'm, I'm amazed. I think it's fantastic. You're right. The autistic voice is getting much more confident and much more assertive. And I think we're really genuinely seeing, seeing real social movement and it's great. Fantastic. Well, before we finish up, is there any closing statement or any last thoughts you want to say? <laughs> no, I think I've I think I've talked I think I've talked out really. Um, thank you. I think I think I don't know. I think we've covered 
I think we've yeah, I think we've covered as much. Right. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. I really have. Thank you so much, and thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. No, it's been great having you on. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. And thank you once again for listening. We really do appreciate it. If you've got time and you can spare 30 seconds, then go and give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps other people find our content. And we know that our content and our episodes are so helpful to our community with lots of hints and tips and interesting interviews. So go and do your kind deed of the day and leave us a five-star review on iTunes to help others find us. Also, so that you never miss an episode and you get a notification when a new one is available why not hit subscribe and that way you'll never miss us finally if you're not already a member of our fantastic facebook support group i suggest you go join it we'd love to see you in there there's loads of fantastic chat lots of peer-to-peer support from people in the same boat as you so go and search on facebook for the chewy gem sensory support group and let us know what you're thinking of our episodes speak to you then bye